Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we are continuing in a sermon series uh, in the book of Acts. This is, uh, we've called our series Purpose and Power, uh, because what we've seen uh, so far in Acts and what we'll see throughout is that Christianity invests our life not only with the promise of salvation uh, after this life, but also it fills our life in the here and now with a purpose, a reason for living, a reason for seeking the well-being of our neighbors and the coming of the kingdom, and a power to accomplish that as the Holy Spirit fills our lives and sends us into the world. And so uh, this morning we are going to be in, the, uh, in Acts chapter 2 still. Um, and if you, our scripture reading today is going to be Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14, going all the way through verse 41. And so it's a little bit of a longer reading, but still, uh, I would ask that if you have it in you to stand, that you stand for the reading of God's Word. If you get tired as we go, you can be seated again, but uh, we're going we're gonna to stand for God's Word. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only uh, the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would not, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. He foresaw and spoke about his resurrection of the Christ, 
that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom our Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Man, at some point, you're glad that Luke decides to add, with this and many other words, he exhorted them. So Luke kind of yada yadas part of the uh, part of the sermon here and says, he gives the, the gist of it, and the gist of it is still quite, quite long. So thanks for standing through that. You know, as we've said in this series uh, in Acts, we're studying the phenomenal growth of the early church, right? Acts is, uh, is a church history book. It's, it's the history of the earliest days of the church and the incredible fruit that that early church bore in the world, how it went from being a small group of marginal people, uneducated people in a corner of the Roman Empire, how that movement came to take over the known world and to even outlast the Roman Empire. Historians and sociologists for generations have tried to explain how this faith, uh, this small faith from small uh, peasant beginnings, came to become the dominant faith of the known world. And historians offer different uh, different explanations of this. A few uh, are consistent. One is how inclusive the Christian faith was. That uh, the Christian faith wasn't one that you had to be born into, right? It's not that you were either born into it ethnically or born as in the Roman world, where if your parents were uh, devoted to one deity or another, you would grow up devoted to that God. It was an inclusive faith that welcomed people of different faiths and of no faith to come in uh, and to become a member. We're also told that the early Christians distinguished themselves through their lives of sacrificial service, right? That in, an ancient, that in the ancient world, they were unique in the way that they look after not only uh, their own impoverished members, but how they took care of the poor and the vulnerable in society, how they took care of people no matter whether they believed or not. They took a servant's position. Others point to the unique way that Christians witnessed to the gospel through their martyrdom, right? That these were people who were willing to die for their faith. That Christianity was a religion that in a difficult world where people face death as a, a frequent reality in their daily lives, that Christianity equipped people to face death with courage and hope and meaning. 
And that this all attracted uh, an early audience to Christianity. But I'm intrigued by this. Uh, a historian at the university, at, at Yale University, Kenneth Scott Latourette, says this. He says, the, the more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. It's clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in human history. Without it, the future course of the religion is inexplicable. Why this occurred, and then notice at this point as a historian, he begins to kind of hedge his bets a little bit and doesn't quite say uh, what he's hinted at here. Why this occurred may lay outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. Notice what he says. He says, look, you can't quite account for all of it, but there must have been an unleashing of an incredible amount of power sometime early in the life of the Christian church, or else we just can't explain it. But then he goes on to say, but I can't say what that is. We don't know what it is. That starts to press into the world of faith versus history. And Acts 2 tells that story. Acts 2 tells the story of what that incredible influx of power was. This is what we uh, celebrate as the day of Pentecost. We, we talked last week about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the mighty rushing wind that came through and the tongues of fire that came to rest on the disciples' heads. And now Peter gets up and he preaches this sermon that everyone who's gathered there, no matter their language, is miraculously enabled to hear as though they're hearing him in their own language. The Spirit and the message are, are Luke's account of what this power is that the early church had. That it was a spirit that fell from above, and then it was a powerful message that had the power to change lives. You'll notice as we preach through the book of Acts, that Acts contains a lot of teaching. Acts contains a lot of sermons. This is the first one of them. Uh, but overall, sermons account for about one-third of the text in the book of Acts. About a third of the book is Luke recounting other people's sermons. So we're going to come to a few of these places uh, where you get to hear a sermon about a sermon when you show up on Sunday morning. Uh, but this, uh, this, it's a way of looking at the fact that Christianity is a faith built on proclamation. That it's a faith that has had preaching at its center for a very long time, from its earliest days. That it's, a, that it's a religion, it's a faith built on the proclamation of news, right? Not just advice to follow, not just uh, uh, wisdom to, to ascertain, but a message that's announced, good news that's proclaimed, the announcement that something has happened in the world that requires your attention. Something has happened that has the power to reorient every little bit of your life. Paul tells us in Romans that the gospel, the, the preached message, the good news, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. That the power isn't just the spirit that's poured out. The power is also in the message. It's in the words that are preached. And what happened on this day, on this Pentecost day? We're told that those who heard were cut to the heart. That that's the effect of hearing this pronouncement, this good news is it has the power to cut right down to our hearts, to expose us before God, 
to reorder our lives from the inside out. That Christianity is a message that cuts to the very heart of every man, woman, and child. And so the question that I'd ask today is, have you been cut to the heart by the good news of the gospel? Because the, re the fact is, if you haven't, if you've never had that experience of feeling yourself uh, laid open before God, of having a message uh, come into your life that changes everything about you, then you may not have ever really dealt with the claims of Christianity, the gospel that claims to have the power to turn your entire world upside down, to fill you with hope and purpose and meaning and love and grace in a way that you never begun to deal with or, or to receive in your life. If you hear the message of Christianity and all you say is, oh, that's cool, that's interesting, that might be helpful for other people, but I'm not sure about myself, then the chances are you haven't really heard it. Not in a way that cuts to the heart, not in a way that reorders the whole of your life. And so we're going to look at this message today. What is the message of the gospel that cuts to the heart? The message that leaves us like that first audience going, what do I do? What do I do in response to get into this salvation? And we're going to see that it's a message about Jesus, that it's a message about you and about me, and it's a message that calls for a response. First, it's a message about Jesus. You'll notice that Peter's entire sermon, every word that he says, uh, is about explaining to the audience who Jesus was and what's happening in their world in their time, right? It's, it's who Jesus of Nazareth was, what he did in his life, and now what's happened in the pouring out of the Spirit through him in his church. I mentioned that Acts is about a third sermons. And uh, a biblical scholar of the last century, a man named C.H. Dodd, uh, did a study in the book of Acts where he was able, I think really persuasively, to pull out these elements that he argued stick, that they come out in every single sermon of the apostles, right? Every single message that the apostles preach in the book of Acts, he argued, contains six points. Now, they don't all contain all six points equally, uh, and they don't all contain all six. Some of them might feature four out of the six or whatever, but that there's a, a constant touchstone that moves through the apostolic preaching as it's told in the book of Acts. You know, there's a, there's a curiosity sometimes, isn't there, to wonder what did the earliest church really believe, right? If you've, uh, if you've dealt at all with uh, uh, that the basic kernel of real Christianity has been lost. And so it's helpful to go back to the apostolic preaching, to these first Christian preachers, to Christian ministers who, who knew Jesus, who saw his death, who saw his resurrection, and go, okay, well, how does what they preached, how does the message they proclaimed match up to the Christianity that I've come to know and to understand? Can we get back to the apostolic message of Jesus? And Dodd argued that there were six major points, and I think we see them all in Peter's message. And I'm going to, don't worry, this isn't going to be a six-point sermon hidden inside of a three-point sermon. Uh, I'm not going to do that to you. This is going to be, I'll, I'll breeze through them. The first is that they all focus on the coming of the kingdom of God and that the people are living in the age of the kingdom, right? It's an announcement that the kingdom is here. That's what Peter does to start this sermon when he says, uh, the men that you're hearing are not drunk, they're filled with the Spirit, and God told us 
through the prophet Joel that this was going to happen when the kingdom came, that he was going to pour out his spirit through his Messiah on his people. So Peter's explaining the kingdom is here, and we see that as a consistent note. Secondly, this, this has happened. This kingdom coming has taken place through the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Right? We see that here in verses 22 and 23, that Peter links uh, the coming of the kingdom with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Thirdly, by virtue of the resurrection, Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God as the Messiah and the head of the church. Right? That's what Peter is doing here. Uh, in verses 24 through 36. He's all this stuff where he's tying Jesus to King David through the Psalms. When he's saying, uh, David looked forward to this day when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's saying that Jesus is the King, that he's the Messiah, the son of David that we've been hoping for. And through his resurrection and ascension, he's now seated at the right hand of God and he rules all things. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit in the church is the sign of Christ's power and glory, right? That the Holy Spirit was a part of the apostolic preaching of the gospel. They didn't just preach the crucifixion. They didn't just preach uh, Jesus died for your sins. They also preached Jesus died for your sins and the Holy Spirit, the promised gift of the Father, has now been poured out on his people to empower them for life and ministry. Fifthly, the, mess the Messianic age will reach its consummation when Jesus returns. Uh, this one has, uh, this one Peter doesn't uh, hit on in this sermon, but over and over, that's a message in Acts. Jesus is coming back, and that will be when he finishes the work of his kingdom. And then finally, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, and salvation come through repentance and faith. That's what's offered in verses 38 through 39. Repent and be baptized, all of you. Right? This, this forgiveness of sins that's available to all people. Respond to the message and experience salvation. That's the apostolic preaching. It happens here in, in Acts 2. It happens uh, throughout the rest of, of the book of Acts. And what we see in this is that Peter's message is a declaration of reality. Right? He's not apologizing for it. He's not doing a whole lot of work to explain it except for to connect it to the Old Testament story. But what he's doing is he's announcing news. He's saying this happened. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. He's ascended to the right hand of God. He's poured out his Holy Spirit on all people, on all, on all who believe. And this is reality. This is the world that you now live in. You now live in a world in which the kingdom has come in Jesus. And the only question is, how will you respond to the reality that's come? Will you, come? will you align your life with that reality? Will you allow it to challenge what you believe to be true? Will you line up your life with that reality? Or will you continue to live in falsehood and refuse to live in light of that reality? Right? The Christian gospel is an announcement that something has happened that changes everything. Have you ever heard news that's, that changed everything about your life and about the world? Right, I can think of, I can think of a few times in my, my life, right? I can think of the time that Haley came out and told me the test was positive and we're having a baby. That changed everything, right? But that just changed it for she and I. That didn't change it for the whole world, as wonderful as my kids are. Uh, I think of the day, when I think of a day that changed everything, I think of the day when I was in college uh, and I was, as every good college student, still sleeping, uh, when a roommate, one of my roommates, burst into my room 
Instead, they've bombed the Twin Towers. We're at war on September 11th. Now, my roommate was prone to hyperbole and exaggeration. Uh, so I woke up and go, what is he talking about? And then I remember going down the, going down, downstairs, turning on the TV and watching what was happening and realizing this is news. This is something that has happened that is going to change everything for our nation, for my growing up, for our society, for some of my friends who are in the armed services, right? That this was going to change the world in which we live in. And I'd only had to deal with that news, right? I could, you could go off and go, I don't believe it. I'm going to keep on living my life as though it didn't really happen. But over time, you'd get dragged into the reality that this happened and now we're all dealing with it. And so if that's the bad news version, the gospel is similar in a good news way. An announcement that, look, this has happened. The one they crucified and placed in the tomb has been risen from the dead and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now he offers life and forgiveness to all who will trust in him. This is news that has happened, according to the apostles, that we can either ignore or deal with. And if you're here uh, today and you've got questions around Christianity, right? We have people every single week with us who are investigating the faith, who are investigating whether or not there really is any truth to what Christians believe. I, my encouragement to you, look, there is a lot of noise surrounding the church and the message of Jesus, right? There's all sorts of reasons uh, that the church has given you or that you've deduced from, from the world around not to believe. You can, it's easy to look at the hypocrisy of the church, uh, to look at the suffering of the world, to look. There, there, there is no shortage of reasons to disbelieve. But the thing that you have to deal with if you're investigating faith and wondering about it Jesus is the one that you have to deal with, right? It's the, the truth of the good news of what he's done that Christianity invites you to consider, right? Deal with his claims. Deal with his resurrection and who he claimed to be and who his followers for 2,000 years have claimed him to be and even been willing to die on that claim. Deal with Jesus and then trust him in the midst of that that he'll help you figure out all the other stuff the doubts, the, the abuses you may have experienced in the church, the hypocrisy you've witnessed, whatever reasons, whatever pain there might be, first deal with Jesus because he is the, cent the centerpiece of the Christian life and message. So it's a message about Jesus. Secondly, it's a message about you and about me. The gospel not only is a message about who Jesus is, but it also implies an understanding of who we are. Look, Peter doesn't mince any words. Twice he says, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom you people killed. Right, that's not, I mean, that's, that's not really pulling any punches. Uh, to say that you, everyone who's hearing this message, is guilty in some way for the death of Jesus. And we're going to talk about that. That's, been, that's a line that's been twisted all sorts of ways in anti-Semitic directions over the course of our history. Right, and Peter's not there just talking about uh, the Israelites or the Jews being guilty of this. He's talking about us right? It's broader than that. But then look what else he says. Just save yourself from this crooked generation. Save yourself from this crooked generation. The, the Greek word there for crooked uh, is scolius. It's, uh, it's the same word that we get scoliosis from, right? And so what he's saying is that the generation that he's addressing, the people, every single one of them that he's addressing, is a part of a crooked people, 
right? What is scoliosis? Scoliosis is uh, a disease, a gen genetic disease of the spine that causes it, instead of growing straight, to grow in a curve, either a C or an S. Some of you might be old enough. I remember uh, scoliosis tests as a kid. Do y'all remember that? Where they'd take a straight rod or a ruler and hold it up to your spine and see if you had early onset scoliosis or not. And Peter is essentially doing that. He preaches Jesus. He lifts Jesus up and says, look, this is what a straight line looks like. This is what reality looks like. This is the one, uh, what true humanity, the second Adam looks like. This is what straight looks like. And in comparison to Jesus, you've all shown yourselves to be a part of a crooked people. That instead of straight and upright, you're bent, right? That you're bent down and in on yourself. What happens to somebody who has scoliosis in, a, in the most severe cases is that what starts off as a little bend early in life gradually becomes a more severe bend. And then if it's a really severe case, it ends up putting a pressure on their, their inner life, their organs and all of that. They can actually crush somebody and be fatal as they kind of grow in on themselves, and so Peter's saying, look, this is, what it, this is what spiritually sin does to us. That as a crooked people, as a bent people, what may start off and in some people just look like a little bit of a wave, a little bit of a crook, over time crushes us. Over time leads to death. That you are a part of a crooked generation and we should save ourselves from this crookedness. And again, he's not speaking narrowly uh, narrowly just to the generation of Jerusalem residents who are there for the crucifixion, right? He's saying, uh, and the rest of the scriptures attest, that one of the steps, one of the first things in receiving Jesus is admitting that you are a part of a crooked humanity, that you are a part of a crooked culture, that you're a part of a, of a world that if you just follow along in the ways of the world is only going to help you get more and more crooked. Right, that, you, that this world is bent in a way that's, that leads towards death. The historian David Wells uh, describes worldliness this way. He says, the world is that thing in the world that makes righteousness look strange and sin look righteous. Right, that the part of living in a bent world is that it makes righteousness look strange and it makes sin look righteous. And so over time, living in a bent world, you start to live with bent definitions of what's good and what's evil, what's holy and what's unholy, what's righteous and fulfilling and what's not, right? That to live, um, uh, to live in a broken and crooked world, that you lose your sense of perspective. And if you just work on being successful in a crooked world, you might be wildly successful. You might attain uh, all that this world looks at as success and yet still be crooked, yet still uh, be afflicted by the diseases of this world. The author David Foster Wallace, uh, in a graduation address that he gave, tells a story. He says, he tells a story of three fish in the ocean. An older fish swims by two younger fish and the older fish says to the younger fish, hey, nice water today, isn't it? And the younger fish swim on their way, and then they look at each other and they go, what's water? Right? And he tells the story to illustrate the fact that you often fish in water aren't aware of the fact that they're in water. They're just living in what they always lived in. Right? And we oftentimes are unaware of the water that we swim in. Right? We're unaware of the fact that we live in a culture that shapes us, 
a culture that weighs its values on us so that over time, what the scriptures say is righteous starts to look foolish and silly. And what the scriptures say is, is foolish starts to look wise. We see this constantly in the way that our world has ordered itself around entirely around an ethic of self-fulfillment, right? Whatever you believe yourself to be, whatever you believe will offer you fulfillment and meaning and purpose, whether it's in uh, the area of your religion and what you believe, whether it's in the uh, arena of your sexuality and your gender, uh, what any, all of the various arenas that this world offers. It says the world is a, is a, is a sandbox and all that matters is you giving yourself authentic expression. And you can win at that game. You can live that life as fully and as successfully as you ever dreamed and still be a part of a crooked way, a way that at the end offers only more crookedness. And so Peter says, save yourself from this crooked generation. Evaluate yourselves in your life by the offer of righteousness and salvation in Christ. And then he nails us when he says, twice uh, he says, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom you killed or whom you crucified. And this is the point that I want to lay out that he's not just talking to the people who are physically guilty of betraying Jesus, right? Partly because we know this, this event, this sermon happened 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus. We're told already that this was people who had come to Jerusalem from all over the known world. So this is already a different group of people than those who were there at the crucifixion. And yet still, Peter says, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Because what he's getting at is the story that, that every human being, that the supreme uh, example of sin in our lives and in the world, is that we are a people who reject God. It was the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, turning their back on God in favor of the apple and the serpent. It was the sin of Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness, turning their back on God in favor of the golden calf, right? That the fundamental nature of sin is the rejection of God, right? It's not the bad things that we do. It's an entire posture of life that rejects God. And so when Peter says, this Jesus whom you killed, what he's saying is what happened to Jesus is what's been happening to God throughout the entire history of his dealings with, human, with humanity, that he has been, when he offers himself in love, he's been rejected in sin. And this is what's happened in Jesus. And yet, instead of just condemning these people who judged him and crucified him, he extends the offer of repentance and forgiveness, right? The one that we killed offers us forgiveness. Peter knew what this was like. Uh, Luke, the author of Acts, all of the gospel writers tell the story of Peter. Remember, Jesus uh, prophesied that as he was heading towards his arrest, that before the rooster crowed three times, Peter would deny him three times. And only Luke gives us the detail that on the third denial, when, when the rooster crows, uh, Luke gives us the detail that Jesus looked right at Peter. So Peter knew what it was to look at a suffering and betrayed Jesus, looking at him right as he was denying knowing him. And so Peter's not saying, look, you people rejected Jesus. He's saying, look, we, all of us, are guilty in the death of our Lord. Our sin, our rejection is a part of what drove him to the cross. The great hymn writer John Newton 
puts it this way in a hymn. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul, trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. And it's this conviction that cuts them to the heart. It's this conviction that they really are that bad, that they are that crooked, that they are that guilty of the rejection of the Son of God, that Luke tells us cuts them to the heart. And so they say, what do we do? Guilty as we are, exposed to this message as we've been, what do we do? And so it's a message that calls for a response. And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's an amazing offer. He says, look, repent. Repent simply means to turn around, order your life into the reality of the kingdom that I've preached. Turn away from sin, turn towards Jesus. And this offer of forgiveness is so broad and so wide and so free that the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are near and all who are far and all that God will call to himself. It's a stunning scope of grace to hear this one who came and died, the one who was killed, the one who was betrayed, doesn't come and say, repent or else, repent or get my wrath, repent or be on the wrong side of the king. He says, repent and be forgiven. Repent and know life, and it's available to you, and not just to you, but to your children, and to all those who haven't even heard yet. The scriptures tell us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the breadth of his mercy. It's the free offer of his grace that causes sinners like us to repent and to say, God, I've made a mess of my life. I've rejected you in every way that matters. I turn my life over to you. Forgive me and set me right and whole again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us the gift of repentance. The Lord, glimpsing your gospel, glimpsing this incredible good news, that we would turn, that we would uh, enter into the light of your reality and your grace and your goodness, that we would taste your forgiveness and be set free by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at Christchurchintown.org.